Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really interesting conversation with Penelope Dean. Penelope is an architectural theorist and critic, an associate professor in the University of Illinois at Chicago's College of Architecture, Design, and the Arts, and her writing has appeared in publications like Architectural Design, the Harvard Design Magazine, and Praxis. She is also the founding editor of Flat Out, which is a really interesting new independent magazine of architecture and design criticism. And what makes Flat Out so interesting, and we talk about this in in our conversation, is that each contributor is asked to write to an invented character or archetype instead of in their own voice. So each issue is written by these characters named the inventor or the muckraker or the mortician. And Flat Out was designed by James Goggin, who was last week's episode. So these two episodes actually go really well together. Uh, There are two issues out now, and I've read both of them, and it's just so fun and unique and plays with form in a way that would be so easy to feel gimmicky and it just never crosses that line. So Penelope and I talk about that and how they do that and where the concept for Flat Out comes from. And we also talk about her own background, moving from being a practicing architect to a more academic career. We talk about modes of writing and using the traits that are inherent in architecture or design to help frame and define the kind of critical discourse that should uh, surround these fields or that these fields should have. I really got a lot out of this conversation. I thought Penelope brought up a lot of interesting ideas that could be uh, applied to how we think about talking about graphic design and just found the way she thinks about these things really, really refreshing. So go check out Flat Out Magazine, buy a copy for yourself, and enjoy this conversation with Penelope Dean. months ago and so I thought a good place to start is if we could kind of just go back in time a little bit to your go through your background a little bit mm-hmm. and I'm I'm I wanted to start with kind of where your interest in architecture came from or how you got interested in architecture oh that's uh go that will go back a long way <laughs> so I'm trained as an architect um uh so my undergrad education was in architecture in Australia, in Sydney. Okay. So that was straight out of high school. And then I went on to do a master of architecture in uh, the Netherlands. Okay. Okay. Um, And then um, obtained a PhD in um, architectural culture, critical architectural culture at UCLA. So it's all I've done in a way, but I've migrated. I guess the the work that I've done has migrated out of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked as an architect for ten years before entering academia in in the U.S. Basically, that was something I was curious about because I'm I I'm very interested in the relationship between practice and academia or practice and theory. Mm-hmm. And when I was researching you, I. It, I saw that you had worked as an architect for a while. So you said mm-hmm. you'd 
you were working as an architect for 10 years before you decided <laughs> to kind of shift or, or what was that kind of how that transition well, I happened? Think the, the architectural education I got in Australia was very, I guess, technical. I mean, the school was a, it was a professional degree and the focus when I was initially studying at that school in Sydney was very technical. And from there, um, I did work uh, for maybe a year or two after I graduated for architects in Sydney. I wanted to kind of get a more conceptual supplement what I'd learned technically with a more conceptual background to architecture, which took me to Europe and Amsterdam and the Berlag Institute where I got the master's. And so there it was less technical education than it really was a conceptual um, thinking about architecture. Yeah. And I ended up, I, I, I then also worked for four years in the Netherlands after obtaining that degree for the Dutch firm MVRDV, which was based in Rotterdam, and worked on a lot of competitions where the conceptual part of the education was very important in the office environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a kind of exhilarating time. But from there, I wanted to... I guess, theorize and, and historicize some of the conceptual ideas and that require that kind of seemed to be the best moment to do that um, in the early 2000s, which okay. is when I came over. So it really, it really was, uh, you know, one, one kind of, um, how would you say, something I felt was missing in each phase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Push me to the next one. Right. I mean, that, that it's interesting for me to hear that because some of my background actually kind of mirrors that in the graphic design world, I think, a little bit, and that my undergrad in graphic design was very technical and was very much kind of practice and process-based. But I also always had this interest in the theoretical or conceptual side, which is kind of why I then went back to mm-hmm. graduate school was to try to find that. Was that that interest in the conceptual something that you had always been interested in or where did that come from uh, in that those kind of early years right after you had graduated? No, that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't – it's hard to say if it um... – yeah, I think it was just a basic curiosity, actually, and from things that I had been reading and mm-hmm. and you know discourses I I I was familiar with that, that were happening overseas. Yeah. That, and yeah. Australia was really at that time, you know, this is pre-internet we're talking about, <laughs> right, right. and pre-social right. media, and so Australia f- felt very isolated right. from the rest of the debates. Right. I mean, it's certainly not the case now, and even the institution that I'm an alum of is is not that kind of a place. Right. So it was that kind of curiosity to know, well, what is going, what, what, uh, where are these debates emanating from? I want, I, I want to be exposed to them, and yeah. it's not going to come here right. to Australia. Right. right. Um, and then I think also the discourses are very different and they were certainly in the 90s when I went over to the Netherlands, the discourses were really very different in Europe than they were in the States. Mm. And um, and and I think also in mid-90s there was a lot of fascination with um, American theoretical and historical discourses, certainly in Europe. It was sort yeah. of 
kind of moment where the two cultures were intersecting very nicely. And so it was sort of after working at MPRDV, I thought, oh, maybe it would be interesting to go and go to the States and, and look at some of these issues in more depth in an academic right. environment. I have... I, I've talked to a, to a, a decent amount of architecture critics uh, in this podcast, and I've always had I've always had a, a, a love of architecture in addition to graphic design. And something that comes up on the podcast a lot that I'd kind of like to pose to you and see if you have any thoughts on this. Uh, as an outsider to architecture, I've always been jealous of that rich discourse that architecture seems to have <laughs> around the profession. There seems. Uh, theory and criticism and and a kind of very deep discourse around the profession seems much more encouraged than it does in graphic design uh and mm -hmm. so so i have i have two questions there one would you agree with that or is that true or or am i kind of romanticizing that as an outsider and then my second question is if you have thoughts if that is indeed true why you know, what is it about architecture that encourages that kind of deep thought around the profession? Okay, so answer to the first question, yes, yeah. I think it's true. Okay. Answer to the second question is, I think it's largely because architecture is a much longer, has yeah. a longer history as a discipline, yeah. and graphic design, like the other design specializations, are relatively new. I mean, early 20th century phenomenon if we understand them as professions right, right of course illustration and has a longer history but it's really early 20th century that interior graphic industrial design yeah. are recognized yeah. also as as you know even well a little later than that they become recognized independent of architecture you see that a lot with mm -hmm. architects doing graphic design right, not right. particularly well so it's also i think to do with it what moment does the graphic designers become independent right and kind of and also um see other ways of doing of 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 doing things which are independent, for example, not related to utility or function or right. or the tenets of modernism that architects laid out. Right. That, yeah, that's really interesting. I've always thought a lot about, you, know, you can laugh at me as, as someone who, who's not involved in architecture at all, if this is completely untrue. Uh, but I always thought, I also kind of thought there might be something to the fact that the process of um building even is just so much longer and that a lot of architects it you know it just takes longer to kind of build something that there's a need to kind of be filling time not filling time but you know there are other avenues to pursue practice aside from building buildings i guess is what yes, i'm trying to say i think that's true and in fact uh you can also see at moments when there is little building activity, especially in the US, yeah. theory and history have really flourished. Yeah. So I think there's definitely a connection between the availability of work and the time you have on your hands right. and writing. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but I also think that fields evolve at different moments. Right. I think the fields have different tempos and and there are different issues at different moments depending on 
what the field is doing. So I, I also am optimistic that that um, fields like graphic design will have many more riders <laughs> very soon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like catch up. Right. I mean, this, I hope you're right, first of all. Um, <laughs> Because, you know that's kind of what I'm I'm very interested in. But this this is might be a good place to transition in. When I was researching you in in the in your biography, um, it said that you're interested in or you're researching the uh, relationship between architecture and the allied design fields. And that mm-hmm. sentence was something that was very intriguing and appealing to me. And you know I think we're kind of getting into that a little bit. But I'm curious if you could just expand on that. A little bit, and what that means to you, or, or kind of what what your interest around that is. Well, that was um, the the subject of the dissertation. Oh, okay, um, but it's still ongoing research for me. And uh, what, I, what I've been doing is looking at the period, more or less, from the late nineteen seventies through to two thousand and eight. So you could say the sort of rise of neoliberalism and then the economic financial collapse or crisis in two thousand and eight. Right. And looking at the relationship of architecture in that thirty-year period to other design fields, like graphic design or interior or industrial design because I think it's really at that moment that architecture simply becomes another kind of design Mm -hmm. and so the argument of my of my um, dissertation and ongoing research is that architecture becomes absorbed by what is really just a generic field of design in which there are many specializations like the classic modern specializations, graphic, interior, industrial, but also new kinds of design, whether that be information design or, or, uh, you know, all the other kinds of designs that have emerged in between the existing ones. Oh, that's so interesting. So that's, that's what the the kind of bigger project is. I talked to, um, this reminds me of a conversation I had with Mark Lampster. Do you know him? He's an architecture critic in Dallas. Uh, no. And, and he and I talked about how the lines of architecture are even blurring a little bit where, it, it sounds very similar to what you're talking about, where there are now kind of architecture critics who are writing about uh, urbanism and space and kind of architecture in the very expanded view instead of just talking about uh, a building, for mm-hmm. instance, but all the things that happen around the building mm-hmm. and that these borders between these different disciplines are getting much, much fuzzier. Yes. I mean, I think <laughs> that's one way of of seeing it. I think that... Another way of seeing it is to actually, I see it slightly differently, which is to say, well, what, how do, the case we have to make as maybe architecture critics is what is specific to architectural culture that's not specific to other design cultures. Oh, interesting. So rather than looking at things blurring together, I'm trying to look at, well, what makes it specific? Yeah. Yeah. At the moment when when you could say everything's not specific. Right. That's interesting. And I should clarify that 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 term blurring together is is my 
interpretation. Those are not his words. I just want to make sure. Mm, okay. I don't. I don't want him to think that I'm. That I'm putting words in his his mouth. Uh, but that's that's kind of the essence of what we were talking about. Uh, but that's something that I think about a lot when I think about kind of trying to define what a graphic design discourse is, where it's actually surprisingly hard to define what graphic design is in a lot of a lot of ways. And so I don't know if I have a question here other than if I'm just kind of agreeing with what you just said, but that idea of figuring out the specific in architecture, something that's interesting to me. And I'm, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, how, how this is a weird question that might be too big to answer in the time that we have. But how do you how do you think about kind of going about finding the specific, what makes the specific components of architecture versus um, another design field? How do you think about that? Well, I think in the case of architecture, it's we have the obligation to project a new kind of world doesn't exist and this is what we talk a lot about at the, at the school where I work UIC mm-hmm. and so it's not about reproducing reality but producing a new idea for a different kind of reality and right. that then can manifest itself in different ways whether it's through writing or it's through um, a built project or whether it's through um, a drawing right. so we have specific disciplinary tools, and mm-hmm. and you do as well, right? As the graphic designer, right? But the obligation is, well, what end are you putting those means toward? That's interesting. I like that a lot, actually. Um, I want to talk. I want to talk about flat out because that's kind of where I first okay. came across your work, uh, and, and um, I it is a project that I'm very interested in. Uh, and so before we before we kind of talk before I kind of ask you my question my specific questions about it I, I I would love for you to kind of give your your uh, description of it uh, I think you'll do a better job of explaining what it is than than I am uh, so how what is what is flat out well it's a uh, it's an architecture and design magazine it comes out twice a year and. The editorial concept for it is that we invented 15 fictitious characters or writers and we then invite different authors to inhabit the role of that character or writer in every issue. And so it was really a way to um, rethink what architectural criticism could be Mm And we also were kind of wanting to push writers to, in a way, not push their writing in directions that they may not otherwise do when they play themselves all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And then we also um, think the graphic component is extremely important in communicating that idea. And so... Collaborate very strongly with graphic designer James Goggin, and we and we also commission different illustrators to interpret the characters for every right. issue. So that I mean, this perfectly sets up my kind of series of questions around that. And the first one is: I love the idea. I love this concept of asking your writers to write to a specific character, and that there's a certain kind of performance aspect. 
to it where they mm-hmm. have to take on these new roles. Where did that where'd that idea come from? I, it's such a great <laughs> idea. And I, I read the first issue uh, and I thought it was so interesting the way and, and you know that you don't put I don't know if this is giving anything away, but you don't put the real person's name until the end. And so you're right, reading this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're reading this as a fictional you're reading this from a, a you know fictional person. I just think it's such a great unique concept. Where'd that come from? I guess it evolved from a few places. Um, one of them was that I had been, uh, as part of the, the kind of research I'd been, uh, from, from my dissertation, I'd looked at a British magazine blueprint, which mm-hmm. had been launched in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one, it was an interesting magazine because it was one of the first that really promoted architects as stars. Mm-hmm. So I was very mm-hmm. interested in this idea of celebrity and which occurs at the time at the moment that the genre of biography really starts escalating in literature. So I'd done that research and then I was struck by the contemporary moment where everybody is against celebrity and 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 authorship. Right. And so I was thinking, well how could one still take on this issue of celebrity and authorship which I think are incredibly important because they say something about um, talent and and quality and and ingenuity and all of those things, which I think are incredibly important in, in still important in culture. Mm-hmm. How could how could I deal with that? But um, you know, turn it into something that was a fiction. So that was one part of it. Another part of it was having seen the David Bowie. Um, show at the MCA in Chicago, okay, and and being fascinated by all of the fictitious personas that he developed right. as part of his, um, you know, performance repertoire. And one of the reasons he did that was because he found it incredibly difficult to write. And I discovered a quote by him which said, "I I couldn't write for me, but it was very easy for me to re- to write for um, Ziggy Stardust." Yeah. And so then I was thinking maybe this would be an interesting challenge for an author, mm-hmm. um, because so because so many of us suffer from writer's block. It could be a kind of release or a liberating way to think about writing. Yeah. And then the third was. Um, a little piece I'd read in Arts and Architecture that was published in the 40s that analysed all different kinds of critics operating at that moment and yeah. they'd all been given strange names. Yeah. And, and, and so I thought, oh, that, there's somebody diagnosing the situation. What if we actually don't diagnose but we just invent them? So it was really those three unlikely sources. And then I have to give credit to James Goggin, the graphic designer, who we kind of had a lot of discussions about like, well, okay, we invent them, but now we also have to visualize them. How right. do we do that? And so right. James was really able to take the personality idea and translate it graphically. Yeah. So it's it's an idea that evolved from different places and then got kind of, yeah, um, put into place by us writing the profiles and James. Um, yeah. Imagining the graphic idea behind them for the magazine. Um, one thing that we were also 
wanting to get away from was the idea of the themed issue. Oh, yeah. And so many publications focus on a theme. Mm -hmm. And what that means is often you don't you get a lot of stuff in there. It doesn't always relate to the theme and it's always it's not always particularly high quality. Right. And the theme so the theme becomes a way to package stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the questions we were also asking is what would it mean to make a magazine without a theme? Right. And then how do you organize the content? That's so interesting. So if I, you know, added to the three things I've been very interested in about, um, you know, the, yeah. from Bowie to arts and architecture to celebrity culture, that came after sort of immediately saying we are not doing themes. Yeah. I and love it was, okay, what do we do? Right. I, I love that. I, I mean, especially hearing the background, I think it's just become so much more more interesting and powerful in a way do you i um does the art do you give the writers subject matters to write about or do they just have yeah. to write to character about whatever they want to in the back of each issue there's a casting call where mm -hmm. we have a writer profile description right. of right. each character and a general interest area and then we will specify length and tone or voice but we don't prescribe subject matter or content okay so we give the scaffolding right um without saying you have but of course like one of the characters is the muckraker which is a fairly it's a well-known kind of right type of writer right, right. so there's some sense of what the obligation there is mm -hmm. um but then another one is you <laughs> right. And, and, right and that's about uh not being you per se but a you in an interior right and writing right in second person we try and look for very young emerging writers as well as more established figures. So we're also in that mix of genres. Right. We're also trying to um, mix up generations of contributors because we also think that architectural culture is not just one generation but right. many, gen many generations working at the same historical moment or writing at the same historical moment. Yeah. How I'm, I'm this, you might not be the person that can actually answer this, but I'm very curious about what the response has been from the writers uh, kind of oh. going through that process. Oh, it's very funny. You asked that because I do write about that in the editorial of the next issue, oh, okay. the, the, which just came out. Um, so, you know, I think the the responses ranged from yeah sure I'll give it a go to you've asked me to write something completely different how do yeah. I do it so it's a whole range of of responses um, but nobody dropped out yeah okay good <laughs> that's a good thing then I guess yes and and then I'm I'm also curious kind of what the response of the readers have been are they able to kind of buy into this fiction that you're creating essentially yes, we've had a lot of positive feedback actually um from readers we also had 
criticism, which is what we love, disagreement anyway. So some of the funny um, criticisms we got were um, more about the design actually than... Oh, interesting. um, So for, you know, but... But interesting things like, well, your margins are very small, and I can't write notes in the on the sides oh, of essays. Oh, okay. okay. Um, or um, it's hard to read the contents page, then jump to the content, and then have to go back to the yeah. to the contents page again because we don't, you can't read this um, linearly, you have yeah. to always jump back to the context to get the first 50 words. Yeah. I noticed that one. I actually, I, I can see that one. And so, but we also, and we took them very seriously and we thought, well, let's just see how it goes because may, this is a way, this is a magazine that asks, do you read differently? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why, I mean, maybe for your listeners who haven't seen the magazine, every single essay starts on the first page, but just right. 50 words, a bit like a newspaper, front page of a newspaper. Right. And then you jump to subsequent pages for the rest of the essays or the um, um, illustrations. So we're just going to see if, if it's something you can learn to yeah. um, navigate. Right, right. I think that's a good way to approach it. Actually, I um I kind of want to. S- I have a question related to that, but I kind of want to connect it to to a larger question that I have. Um, I'm very something that I'm very interested in is kind of finding new forms for design writing, and so the fact that this is a podcast was born out of an experiment of, you know, do these kind of critical discussions that I'm interested in have to take place with text on the page or can it, can you talk about design at a deeper level on a podcast? And I've kind of done some experiments in video and I've talked to people who have done design criticism as fiction or, or kind of short stories to, to talk about these things. Uh, and I think you're kind of doing that also with, with flat out is kind of playing with the form of the critical essay in a lot of ways. And so my question I guess this is two questions. One, I'm kind of interested in just your general thoughts around the form of design criticism, architecture criticism, just kind of that that format and how we can play with that and mold that. And then more specifically is when I asked about kind of how the reading response, how the reader's response was, is this concept, which is very high concept, could very easily go into gimmicky yes and and you never i don't think you ever cross that line but that's a very easy line to cross and so how do you think about that and then connecting that to the first part is how do you think about playing with the form without it just becoming a gimmick but is actually kind of contributing to what you're talking about yes no i mean that's we're really aware of that and that is a really fine line Mm -hmm. and we also have heard that um, that we've managed to avoid that so far yeah. as well yeah. from some people. So I that's so. good. Um, well, a couple of things. What we deliberately try to do is to mix up, well, not mix them up, but to have all different genres of writing together in one journal. So typically you would get, say, the scholarly essay in a peer-reviewed journal or you right. would get... Um, 
you know, journalism in a newspaper or a magazine right. Right. or criticism somewhere else. Right. And so what we try to do is to put all of those things in one magazine, Interesting. which means that some readers may only be interested in the genealogist piece, which mm -hmm. are scholarly essays with a lot of footnotes, right. for example. A non-architect might be interested in the outsider character, which is already always written by somebody who's not an architect, right? but somebody that has a tangential relationship to the field. Right, right. So, so that's one way we're trying to experiment with the genre, not so much inventing new genres, but inventing a way to line them up. Yeah. So all in the same issue. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then and then in terms of avoiding the gimmicky nature of it, I mean, we, we try and we're very attentive to um, scholarly conventions. Mm -hmm. So we had long discussions about the role of footnotes and where to put them, for example. Okay. And then um, also like sentence structure and the the voice are also very, very important. So mm -hmm. what we also realized, we don't want it to just be a joke. We want, so in a way, the writing has to be excellent and very well edited. Right. Um, and the graphics have to be very, very um, um, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So like the, the, yeah. the craftsmanship of the issue is is at a very high level, graphically and editorially. And we're also our content, it, we also want a range of very serious um, yeah. and then lighter, wittier pieces. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly what my next question was going to be, because that was the thing that I was most impressed by in the first issue, is how you were able to blend the very scholarly with humor or a very kind of popular writing and that those could sit side by side and that there aren't a lot of publications, if any at all, that can kind of have those sit next to each other and they feel okay next to each mm -hmm. other. Uh, how do you think about that? I, you know, I it was just, let's, it's just one of those things we say, let's try it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're also, what we realized from going from issue one to issue two was that it was one thing to edit for content. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. another thing to edit for voice and tone oh, in an architecture publication. Mm -hmm. And so what we found was we, in issue two, we really had to develop our style sheets for every character and take notes all the time and right. and sort of develop all of these rules so that we achieved a continuity between the 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 mortician in issue one and the mortician in issue two. Yeah, so editorially yeah. it was very challenging but it, it like kind of exhilarating. So what we also discovered in that process, and we really have to thank the writers for showing us this, is that it was possible for then one author in issue two to comment on um the characters' comments in issue one, even though they'd been written by somebody right. else. Right. So oh, it was so a totally different way, a totally different way of um, producing discourse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, because yeah. you're playing the same role as somebody else, but it's a different person, obviously. It's a little bit like, I always like to think of it as, you know, is it the Sean Connery playing James Bond or Roger Moore, for example? Right. And and so, you know, I mean, obviously this is the kind of thing that TV writers do all of the t- all the time in soaps, but at least they have the same actor playing the right. same character for right. more than one episode. Yeah. So yeah. we only have them playing one episode. Right. So... That was very, yeah, like just eye-opening. Yeah. Um, but yeah. also kind of raised the stakes of what we had to do with it as editors. And I have to also say that I work with, it's not just me. Um, there right. are a number of us editing um, and each each one of us does something better than the all the rest. Yeah. So it's yeah. an amazing team. That's great. Um, you know, thinking about that, that idea of, of kind of them being able to comment on the other one and mixing something that's very scholarly next to something that's, you know, maybe more humorous, something that I'm really interested in. Uh, and hopefully, you know, kind of one of the goals of, of this, this podcast is that I've found for graphic designers that a lot of the theoretical discourse that does exist is kind of relegated to the universities into the schools and is written in this very kind of formal, you know, kind of uptight, hard to tough understand manner. And that I found that there are a lot of people who are very interested in the theoretical discourse around design, but they just don't know how to get into it because it's <laughs> this thing that lives off on the side. And I think it's interesting of kind of putting these things side by side can act as kind of a stepping stone into, uh, you know, maybe deeper, longer, uh, more academic texts. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what my question is, but I'm curious how you go about introducing, you know, harder, I I don't want to say harder texts, but, you Mm. know, within architecture and within flat out, introducing people to types of readings that they might not be familiar with, or um, I don't, I'm struggling with how to, you know, so that you're not talking down to the people that do know this thing, but you're also keeping it accessible for the people that don't know it. How do you find yes. that balance is, is kind of, well, sorry, that was a long way to ask that question. No, that's great. That's a good question. And maybe that helps me say what I said before more clearly, which yeah. is, there are, you know, there is, in the end, it depends a little bit on the writer that you're working with. Yeah. Um, some people are, just have the knack and, and can do that in extremely elegant ways. Yeah. Um, which, and what that means is, and I'm just, I'm also thinking back something, something I read in Arts and Architecture from the landscape architect Garrett Ekbo, which is what is landscape architecture? And he starts off describing very anecdotally the front garden of a house in suburbia, which would be very appealing and eat to, for a lay reader, for example. But then as the narrative unfolds, it becomes more and more technical and, mm-hmm. and didactic. So mm-hmm. that transition, it, it sort of passes from um, right. journalism to, you know, not it, it never becomes academic writing, but it would appeal to... Um, that kind of an audience. So that happens within the piece. We have not managed that yet, but so that's 
and I also think it's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. So we thought, well, if we simply say, okay, we have the scholarly piece, and that will appeal to a certain kind of reader, and then we have the the right. the witty. Um, commentary that will appear, appeal to, to another kind of reader yeah. and then we have a graphic essay um, which will appeal to a different kind of reader. So we're sort of trying to imagine that we have niche, region, niche readers and right. they may only be interested in one slice of the magazine. Because one of my fantasies is to, you know, once – kind of collect a series of essays and publish an anthology by the mortician, for example. Right, yeah, that'd be great. So, you know, or by the outsider. Right. That, oh, but yeah. That, that's just an idea for the future, but... Right. No, it's so a... then the, the magazine kind of gets sliced in a different way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have just a couple quick questions. These are questions that I ask everybody to kind of wrap up and kind of end, end the conversation. And this question, I'm going to kind of ask you in two different ways, because this is a very graphic design question. And so I'm yes. going to kind of ask you the graphic design version, but then also the architecture version. And I'm very curious, what are the issues, the topics, the subjects that uh, graphic designers should be talking about right now? Or what is what are the things that should be a part of that discourse? And so I'm, I'm curious what you think as someone who's kind of close to graphic design, but is not a graphic designer, if you have thoughts on that. And then I'm also curious about that question for architecture and what are the things architects are kind of grappling with right now or architecture theorists are grappling with right now? Hmm. Gosh, I that's, I, the graphic design question is very hard. Yeah, um, I know I said these are quick questions to end it. And then I ask you a, a hard question. I mean, I, you know, I, I can think of, um, essays on graphic designers, um, you know, like historical figures mm -hmm. and, um, or even their own writings. What I can't think of, or what I haven't seen, and this could be simply because I'm not in your field, is graphic, uh, uh, gra you know, like reviews of graphic design, contemporary graphic design work by other graphic designers. Does that exist? Yeah. Uh, kind of. Yes, it does exist. Um, and and uh, I don't want to get too, too far into this because we are short on time. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that I'm interested in is that when that does exist, it often kind of is relegated to a surface level review. So it's looking okay. at the colors, the typography without kind of, there's not a lot of it that considers all the context around it, you know, where it lives in the world, kind of the, the economics that it was born out of those types of things, uh, which is something I'm saying this because that's the kind of thing I'm very interested in reading. And there isn't much of that, but there are things okay. like a company redesigns their logo and then someone will write a review of what that new logo looks like and is that taking place in i magazine and what it yeah in i uh still a lot online a lot of online kind of publications um i you know i honestly think a, a lot of that's getting less and less because people are just kind of 
tweeting about new stuff now so people aren't even doing long form writing and graphic design as much uh, at that kind of level mm -hmm. but i agree with you i think that's a great that's actually a great answer uh and then maybe i'll just um answer your second question in relation to architectural criticism yeah which is i think we need more humor and more wit yeah and um, a little more lightheartedness. That doesn't mean light content, but less sort of apocalyptic writing. Right. That's, yeah, that's a great, that's actually a great answer. Um, I think you're, and, and I, I love that because I think, I think you're kind of d trying to do some of that with Flat Out in a way, is that there there is a, it's so clear that you take these subjects seriously and your writers take these subjects seriously, but there's a lightness to it, not as in, um, you know, kind of that you don't care, but it's fun. It's fun to read. Uh, I think that's a great answer. My last question for you, hopefully this is a kind of quick, kind of easier question. I'm very interested in who are the writers, the critics, the theorists, the uh -huh. designers, architects who have really influenced you and the way you think about these things or the, the, the kind of writing that you really enjoy reading? Mm -hmm. you, uh, well, I enjoy very much the writing, the criticism of Raina Bannon. Mm, yeah. Um, there's also an Australian critic, um, Robin Boyd. Oh, I don't who, know that name. Who um, wrote fabulous mid-century criticism. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> witty, I mean, very, very astute, accessible, witty, um, opinionated. Yeah. And for the same reason, I appreciate um, Bannum's writing. Right. And there also, you know, I also think there are architects who write extremely well. And I already mentioned the landscape architect, Garrett Ekbo, mm -hmm. but I also think the writing in arts and architecture mid-century was very good so that's also a go-to <laughs> place for me yeah um and then and then um more recently um there have been moments in publication culture that have been very inspirational like alessandro mendini's um mm. um editing of domus oh right and 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 the way in which he reinvented the editorial as a letter for yeah. his for his the two years of publications he edited um late 70s to early 80s so that's i i would need more yeah. names come to me obviously after i've hung up <laughs> right yeah of course i mean everybody says that I, I i know that that's simultaneously the easiest question to answer and the hardest question to answer uh but i thought those those were great and domus was a great one who actually doesn't that that, that publication doesn't come up as often as it should on the podcast. So I think it's good to, to mention them. Um, Penelope, thank you so much for this conversation. This was so fun for me and it was great to kind of hear about your background and about flat out spe specifically. I love the work that you're doing uh, and look forward to, to future issues. So thank you so much for, for being a part of this. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun and it's given me things to think about.
This episode was recorded on October 18th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.